0: To Romans chapter 3 verse 21 as we do begin a new section of the book. Romans 3:21 By and large, Romans 1:18 through 3:20 uh, could be considered bad news. In this passage of Scripture, Paul has maintained that all stand condemned. All stand condemned. And I might add, equally condemned. And this is a condemnation before God. There are no exceptions. Paul has made that crystal clear in chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through 320. We spent a couple, two, three months on that. But Paul doesn't leave us with bad news. In fact, a gospel presentation that does nothing but demonstrate the guilt of the individual, which would be bad news, without then revealing the tremendous truth that God's righteousness can be had as a gift through faith alone in Christ alone is an act of cruelty. If you just get someone lost and never tell them how to become saved, that is an act of cruelty, and Paul doesn't do it. He begins, off, he begins with bad news, but he moves on to very good news. It is valid to explain to people the fact that they have a need, but don't leave them there. It's legitimate to destroy a false worldview and knock out false hope. That's legitimate. But if that's all you do, you have not demonstrated the kindness of of Jesus Christ to that person. Before one can truly appreciate the grace of God, our lostness must be fully understood. And I know we've spent a lot of time on our lostness. We've we've spent a lot of time on lostness as people who are not lost anymore. And you might wonder why... We do that. It's not to tear us down. I I don't like it when believers overemphasize their own worthlessness. Because you know what? You're not worthless. As a believer in Jesus Christ, you are not worthless. You were lost. You were dead, dead before you came to Christ. You were uh, in a position where you could do nothing to earn your salvation before God. But even as an unbeliever, you had certain value before God because you were created in the image of God. But as a believer in Jesus Christ, you are now his child. So technically speaking, while we ought not to be proud and boastful and arrogant, you do have value. You have the value of a child. And while we fail all the time, every day, just like your children fail frequently, just like you failed as a child, it doesn't mean your parents consider you worthless because you brought home a bad report card. Or because you didn't catch the touchdown pass. Or because you wrecked the car. No, you still have value. So you need to be very careful with not misunderstanding what Paul has done in 118 through 320. He's not saying, Believer, you worthless piece of vermin. No. Now, we may feel that way sometimes because we act that way. And we've gone back to the old to the old life. And Paul will talk about that a little bit later in the epistle. But you, as a believer in Jesus Christ, are not worthless. You were lost, however. And Paul makes that crystal clear we must realize that on our natural state we are completely helpless and there's nothing we can do to gain favor from God if we think for just a minute that we're as an unbeliever or when we were unbelievers that we're just a little bit better than the next person that we didn't need salvation quite as much as the next person needed if we think that for just a minute and listen most of us have thought that at one time or another we can bring up names. it's probably not necessary. But you can, you can plug in the worst person you can think of. Plug in your own name. I wouldn't want to distract you by plugging in one, the one I can think of. And mine's a female. Uh, but the worst person that I can possibly think of. You know what? I need a Savior. I need Ed, a Savior, as much as she does right now. I was just as lost as she is right now. You know, you plug your own person in. Now, if you can't do that, if you if you can't bring yourself to accept that, that before you came to Christ, you were just as lost as Osama bin Laden or Saddam Hussein or whoever you want to plug in there, then you don't really fully appreciate the grace of God. Sometimes we talk about Paul being the apostle of grace. You know, John, the apostle of love, and Paul, the apostle of grace. I'm not sure that that distinction should be made. But... Paul pounds home grace. And one of the things that I hope that we learned over the past several months was the state that we came from. And there's a reason for that. Believer in Jesus Christ, there's a reason for understanding where we came from. And that is to have a fuller appreciation of the grace of God. God's riches at Christ's expense. Somebody had to pay for it. And he had to pay just as much for me as he did for anybody else. And just as much for you as he did for anybody else until you grasp that beautiful truth and it's a beautiful truth you'll never fully appreciate the grace of God until you fully appreciate the grace of God you can never say you're on the track to maturing as a believer in Jesus Christ and I do consider that a process not necessarily a destination it's something that is a direction that we move I think it's a little dangerous when we start I have matured in Christ it's dangerous be careful We can all continue our process toward uh, maturity and glorifying God. Occasionally, and I wouldn't say that we need to make this something that we do all the time. That's why I, I prefer to do expositional Bible preaching through books, because sooner or later you cover all the material. But occasionally it is healthy from a spiritual standpoint To look back and remember from whence we came. Now, if you did nothing but that, you might confuse yourself into thinking that you were worthless before God. If that's the only thing that you ever concentrate on. Much like if you're driving along in a car and all you ever do is look up in the rearview mirror, what's going to happen when you're going this direction? Uh, Sooner or later you're going to run right in the back of somebody because you have no vision to go forward. Now, you'll know a lot about what's going on in the past. And an occasional look doesn't hurt, just so you don't repeat the same mistakes, Uh, just so you know somebody's coming up fast on you that maybe you should be paying attention to. But on the whole, a glance in the rearview mirror is fine, but then your focus needs to be on what lies ahead. That's why Paul says, forgetting what lays behind, I look forward, I'm looking ahead to what's going on in the future, because you can't do a darn thing about what happened in the past. I don't care how bad it was or how heinous it was or how much it embarrassed you or how much it shocked you, you can't do anything about it. Get right with God, confess it, bring it to him, acknowledge your guilt before God, and then get going again. And make sure you don't do that again. That's the repentance part. But occasionally it's healthy to do that. And, And periodically we should look back and remember where we came from. Frequently we should look back and remember the cross of Jesus Christ so that we never forget the sacrifice that he made for us. Do you see the subtle distinction that I'm making there? Periodically, we should look back and remember from whence we came. That's a self-focused thing. But frequently, we should look back and remember what was done for us. Frequently. Now, we do that in the communion service once a month. You know, some churches do it more often. But I hope you remember what was done for you every single day, every single morning. matter of fact, some of the great preachers of the past made a point of bringing every sermon through the cross. Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon, one of the prince of preachers in England of a past generation, made sure that every message intersected with the cross at some point in his message. So periodically we look back and remember who we were. Frequently we look back and remember what was done. Because, see, the frequency is focusing on Christ. Periodically we take a look at ourselves, but frequently we focus on Christ. Now, in the passage that we're beginning today, read along with me. Paul says in verse 21, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In verse 24, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness, because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. This passage, chapter 3, verses 21 through 26 of Romans, which Martin Luther called the chief point, the very central place of the epistle and of the whole Bible, falls very neatly into four parts. And we'll, we'll break our study down into these four parts. First, what we'll study tonight... Paul reiterates the revelation of God's righteousness and relates it to the Old Testament. That's a, he goes back and references back in chapter 1, verse 17. Second, what we'll take a look at next week, all human beings, all human beings equal in their sin, have equal access to God's righteousness through faith. And that's verses 22 and 23. And the third division, the source of God's righteousness, righteousness is the gracious provision of Christ as an atoning sacrifice that's verses 24 through 25a if you're trying to write these down I will repeat it and fourth the atonement not only provides for the justification of sinners but also demonstrates the justness of God throughout the process in this fourth section there is a strong emphasis on the integrity of God and by that I mean his always acting in complete accordance with his own character. Now, for those who were trying to write, let me say it one more time and, and let you catch up. The first section of this extremely important portion of the Bible, I mean, it, it might could be argued whether or not this is the, the central focus of the entire Bible, but I see Luther's point. You know, ter- terribly bad news has been given. If that's all we ever have, we would be living in total despair every day of our life. I know a lot of people that do that already that don't have Christ, I don't see how they do it. I do, I do not see how an unbeliever goes through this life with any comfort at all. I just can't see it. There's too much suffering in this world. Every day that we march along, we're one step closer to death. You know, I talk to people frequently, and I say, Boy, this body it is just terrible the way that this body gets older. And the only comfort that I can think of to tell a person like that is, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, well, that, just understand you're one step closer to a body that's never going to get older. And if you don't appreciate that, how could you, how could you deal with the aging process? I mean, so it, it very well could be. It's certainly a central passage in the entire Word of God. That's why we'll probably break it down into four lessons. It's that important. Paul's given us bad news, but now here comes the good news. And you've got to say, all right, I'm glad to hear that there is good news after that terrible news. First, Paul reiterates the revelation of God's righteousness as it relates to the Old Testament. The second division, all human beings equal in their sin have equal access to God's righteousness through faith. We've already seen that all are equally lost. He's going to make sure we remember that in Romans 3.23 by saying, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But he also wants us to understand that all human beings have equal access. Isn't that great news, too? Isn't that great news? You know, we were equally lost. You might be offended by that. But you know what? There's, There's no class distinction. There's no race distinction. There's no gender distinction. There is no intelligence distinction. All have equal access to this incredible gift of justification. Paul's going to make that clear in verses 22 through 23. In verses 24 through the first part of 25, uh, Paul's going to teach, The source of God's righteousness is the gracious provision of Christ as an atoning sacrifice. And the acronym I used for grace a minute ago, God's riches at Christ's expense, somebody had to pay for this. In order for God to maintain his integrity, somebody had to pay. And Jesus Christ is the one that did And then fourth, the atonement not only provides for the justification of sinners, but it demonstrates the justness of God throughout the process. You know what else it demonstrates? It demonstrates exactly how he felt about sin and feels about sin. He couldn't just sweep it under the rug. He couldn't just act as though it never existed. He couldn't just call on some unknown angel from some unknown part of the universe and say, hey, listen, you go pay for that. I'm going to crucify you. In order to pay the price, it was his own precious son that had to pay And in this last section, again, we'll see a strong emphasis on the integrity of God, which is his always acting in complete accordance with his own character. Now, the time that we have left, we do have time to take a look at verse 21. Again, Paul says, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and by the prophets. Paul says, But now. And this marks a great transition from man's guilty status to the possibility of a right standing before God. In effect, he says, "It is true there is no way man may be justified by doing good works, but now he may be justified by faith." I hope you agree this is a magnificent piece of good news. In fact, this is the passage that caused the great Bible expositor of a past of the past generation, Martin Lloyd Jones, to remark, there are no more wonderful words in the whole of Scripture than these two words. But now. You see why I would say that? You have this incredibly bad news. But now. Now comes the good news. This, this is a great, great passage. And if the last portion depressed you a little bit, and that's not what it was meant to do. It was meant to remind us of from whence we came. But if that did, this ought to make you sky high to realize what God has done for us. Now, just one note or one gentle reminder about the idea of justification, because it's a major issue not only in this section but in in the entire book of Romans. To be justified before God is more than having your sins forgiven. It includes the forgiveness of sins. But it is more. Justification is not merely subtraction, not merely subtraction of sins. It is addition. It is the subtraction of sin and the addition of righteousness, God's righteousness, and that's something that we need to unpack. <laughs> One of the central phrases in, in not only in the, this verse that we study tonight and in the section that we study over the next three or four weeks. But again, in the entire book, is the phrase, the righteousness of God. The Bible actually reveals five categories of righteousness. First, self-righteousness. For example, that's explained in Romans 10, 1 through 3. and Philippians 3, chapter 9, I think most of you are familiar with self-righteousness. The second is God's actual attribute of righteousness. Paul talks about, I mean, the psalmist talks about that in Psalm 7, verse 9. That is an attribute of God, righteousness. Third, the way that this phrase is used, the quality of life of a believer walking by the Spirit, being a doer and not just a hearer of the Word. That was something we studied back in James the quality of life of a believer walking by the Spirit, being a doer and not just a hearer of the word. That's called righteous behavior. Fourth, the fruit or righteous production of a believer walking by the Spirit. John talks about that in Revelation 19.8 and Paul in Romans 8.4. But finally, the, the type of righteousness that Paul speaks about here is the fifth and final category of righteousness revealed in the Bible, and that's imputed righteousness. And so this is the category that Paul has in mind primarily from verses 21 to 24, and most of the time in this letter. Now, what is imputed righteousness? Again, back to our passage, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. Well, to begin with, it helps to note that the article V does not occur in the original Greek text. In fact, that's why in the New American Standard, and I'm sure in most of your Bibles, the word "the" is in italics. He says literally here, a righteousness of God, but apart from the law or a law, the righteousness or a righteousness of God has been manifested. By putting it this way, Paul is not specifying God's divine attribute. What I mean by that is, remember, there were, there were five categories of righteousness in the Scripture. The second one was the actual attribute of God's righteousness. Now, listen carefully. This, this can get a bit technical, but it's really important for you to, to grasp it. God's not emptying himself of his righteousness and giving it to me. Okay, That's his attribute of righteousness. But what this text talks about the way that this Greek construction reveals it, Paul is speaking of a God kind of righteousness, a righteousness that's fully compatible with God's character. So it would be identical to his righteousness, but it's not the righteousness of God. He's not emptying himself of his own righteousness and giving it to you. He's giving you a righteousness that would be compatible with his own. You see, it's a subtle distinction, but it's one that ought to be made. You have a righteousness now that's been imputed to you, given to you, if you will, that is identical with the righteousness that God possesses. So now he can have fellowship with you. Human beings, being the way we are, we, we have a wide variety of people we have fellowship with. Some people we might not, to Remember, evil companions corrupt good morals. But other people, it's good for us to fellowship with. The way God is... You're not going to get to live with him forever until, unless you possess the same type of righteousness that he does. Since we can never earn that on our own, that's part of Paul's point here, it had to be given to us. Now, Theologically, we call that an imputation. Uh, and uh, that imputation is, is of a God-like righteousness compatible with God's character. As the wrath of God dominated Paul's discussion of the bad news in one eighteen through 3.20, so the righteousness of God dominates his discussion of the solution. The imputation of the righteousness of God, or a God-like righteousness if you prefer, but I probably won't say that every time. I just want you to understand God doesn't empty himself of his own righteousness to give it to you. He gives you a righteousness that is like his that's consistent with his, that's compatible with his. The imputation of the righteousness of God to the believer at the moment of faith is God's justifying activity. That's how Paul's using this term, justification. It's not the way that we use it sometimes. You know, we may do something that's not uh, really up to par, and when somebody challenges us about it, then we give a whole bunch of excuses, and and what do we say? That person's trying to justify themselves, That's not the meaning of the word here. When you see the word from here on out, justification, or we're justified by faith, it means that we get this righteousness that God can have fellowship with, temporally and eternally, by means of faith. Now, what about this? Well, there's two phrases now that we need to discuss, the first and the last. Apart from the law the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. So we need now to look at the beginning phrase and the last phrase. That the righteousness of God is spoken of in the Old Testament is not open for debate. It's kind of like this debate that goes on sometimes that you have uh, uh, law was given through Moses, but grace came through Jesus Christ. That's an improper understanding of that passage. And, And sometimes people say that that means that there was no grace in the Old Testament, and then there was no law in the New Testament. Well, that's uh, we'll have to study that sometime. But that's not what that passage indicates. Um, the Old Testament does speak of the righteousness of God. This is made clear even in our own passage. And I, actually, I'm going to take the second of the two phrases first, because the person would say, "Apart from the law." And then the last part says, "It looks like the law is very much involved." The law and the prophets are very much more. So let's take the last part first. I think that's the easier of the two parts. And then uh, we'll be more comfortable with what we see in the beginning. But the last phrase says, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. So if we eliminate the first phrase for just a minute, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Of course there's the righteousness of God revealed in the Old Testament. It's not a brand new idea. Of course it has been revealed. The Old Testament as a whole anticipates and predicts the gift of justification by grace through the redemption of Jesus Christ, or if you prefer, by the redemption of the coming Messiah, or even more specific, by the redemption of the servant of the Lord, the coming servant of the Lord. Of course it's there. So although the Messiah had not yet come, and the propitiation for sins had not yet been accomplished, the Old Testament looked forward to that day. that makes sense? So it had been revealed... It had been witnessed by the law and the prophets. The Old Testament period, uh, men and women were saved in the same way that we are today, by grace through faith. Abraham's the great Old Testament example of that, and that's something that Paul will use as an illustration in Romans chapter four. And it's very important that we as a group that we understand that. I don't want somebody making a mistake that is made sometimes. In fact, Sometimes we in the dispensational camp have been misunderstood in that they think that we teach that there's two methods of salvation, one for the Old Testament and one for the New Testament. You know, sometimes people think that we believe that salvation is by grace through faith in the church age, but salvation was by keeping the law in the Old Testament period. And perhaps the way some of the early dispensationalists wrote, that their writings might be uh, considered to have said that. But that's not at all the case. I don't know of any modern dispensationalist that would say that. Uh, everybody recognizes that whether Old Testament or New, we're saved by grace through faith. Abraham was saved by grace through faith in Yahweh. He trusted God. He trusted Elohim in order to provide him justification. And the result of his faith was justification. So just, just so we make sure that we understand as we go forth with this, salvation is by grace through faith regardless of the dispensation So this is where the one last item in this verse needs to be dealt with, and that's the the phrase, apart from the law. Paul says, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. This Greek preposition, chorus, means without, not with, in relationship, no relationship to, uh, apart from, or independent of. So if, if you prefer, we could say, independent of the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed. You see where some confusion might come up? Because here he says, independent of the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed. And at the end of the sentence, he says, it's been witnessed by the law and the prophets. So what's he talking about here? Paul's use of the term law in the first part of the verse refers, in my view, back to verse 20, where he speaks of works of the law. He says, because by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified in his sight. I believe that's, he's continuing the idea of that in verse 21, although he's changed major sections of the epistle. And remember those incredible words, but now. What Paul is saying, the idea, if I was to summarize it, is this. Independent of an individual performing works of the law, God's redeeming work in justification has now come into focus. This is the same work that was anticipated and predicted in the Old Testament. Now that's, an, that's a, a fairly, to say that's a loose paraphrase is to is to misuse the word paraphrase. But I'm trying to give you the idea of what's going on here. So again, let me let me give you a summary idea. Of what's going on in verse 21. Paul is saying. Independent. Of an individual performing works of the law. God's redeeming work and justification. Has now come into focus. This is the same work. That was anticipated and predicted. In the Old Testament. Yeah, that's great news. We are children. Of an incredible Father. He does not leave us in despair. Thomas Jefferson was not a theist. He was not a Christian either. He was a deist. And the way that he viewed God was God did create everything, and then he kind of set back and left his creation alone. Didn't reveal himself to anyone. Uh, didn't, certainly didn't send his son to pay for the sins of mankind. And I have to say, that would be kind of a mean God, wouldn't it? To create you and then just leave you in the dark. Just leave you in despair. Well, we're the children of a great father, an incredible father, not a father that would do that. He provided hope for a hopeless situation. He's provided the anchor for our souls, which is this hope we have in Jesus Christ. And I guess to sum it up, I would use the words of Gilbert Binken, who said it well. Other men see only a hopeless end, but the Christian rejoices in an endless hope. Well, more on this next time. (laughs) Heavenly Father, what a great and awesome privilege we do consider to be called your children and to be recipients of this righteousness. We thank you that you have given us this hope. And so that as we pass through this life and as we take one step after another and one day after another, we don't have to despair of getting older. We don't have to despair of illness. We don't have to despair of those who are friends and family that, that, uh, that go to be with you before we do. We thank you that we can live because we have this hope, this endless hope. And now, Father, as we go our way, I pray you'd put a protective hedge around each and every person here. Comfort the souls of every life represented here, for I know that there are many things going on in every life. And, Father, I pray that you would dismiss us then with the riches of thy grace and peace and mercy upon us, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.